0: Our study today is entitled The Beauty of Holiness, and there's a reason I had asked Katie to explain a little bit of the changes that had come into her life since following the Lord and His Word, and one of those was this issue of dress and adornment, and not only the diet and lifestyle and the Sabbath-keeping and all the things that go with it, Um, and I've noticed something in the last, believe it or not, um, last year or so, I've actually preached three evangelistic campaigns, and each more than 20 sermons a piece so I've got 60-something evangelistic series within the last uh, sermons in the last year or so, and visiting with a good number of people who have come to these campaigns. And one of the things that I consistently see, consistently see, is that, as we mentioned before, these big concepts that God created the world, and that someday soon, Jesus is coming back. And there's a great controversy that began in heaven, and All of these ideas, the millennium and what happens when we die and all these different things are big concepts. And those, oftentimes, the biggest ideas, people will respond like, yeah, okay, cool, that's neat. I see that in the Bible. Amen. Great, that's wonderful. But then you take what would seemingly be smaller things, like, okay, now that you see the Sabbath, now you don't go to work on Sabbath, you actually rest on the Sabbath. And you don't go shopping, you change how you... Like, whoa, slow down. Wait a minute. what? That's a big idea. Or like, I see that the Lord's ideal is for us to be healthy. Amen. That means that no more unclean meats. Slow down. You know, what happens is we often have these big theological concepts, and as long as they're big and broad and far, far away, it's easy to smile and nod. But the ones that hit close to home, those little 99-cent middle-of-the-week things, are the ones that are oftentimes the biggest issues in our lives, because they're so practical. And this set of sermons, and, uh, following up from this evangelistic campaign, is going to be looking at, has been looking at, some very practical things, like daily prayer life, returning a faithful tithe, and giving generous offerings. And today we're going to be looking at the biblical concept of how we adorn ourselves from Scripture. So before we begin any study of God's Word, of course, we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right into our study. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another Sabbath day. Thank you that we can be here together as a church family. And now, as we turn our attention to a study of your Word, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us all things as you've promised he will. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would please turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Speaking of the great controversy, we're going to dive to one of those texts that gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the fall of Lucifer and the beginning of what we now see in our lives as this great struggle between good and evil, between Christ and his enemy. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse 12, we see the Lord's description of Lucifer, and we can tell that it's Lucifer because it's speaking about things that only would apply to him. Ezekiel... Just before the book of Daniel, chapter 28, starting with verse 12, the scripture reads, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And again, this is talking to the power behind the earthly power. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of, what's that word? Perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in what regard? Beauty. Beauty. Now, notice this is speaking after the fact. It's saying you were those things, implying that now you are not. But in the beginning, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it lists them. And I want you to pay careful attention to the list. Notice the order and the sequence. All the things listed are in little groups of three. The The sardius, topaz, and diamond. The beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, some versions say, for so I ordained you. I set you apart for this particular position and post. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways. From the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And it lists off several different ways that this creature, this Lucifer, this great exalted one, was perfect. And it mentions perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty, and it outlines actually how he was ordained, I mean, adorned, and how he was ordained to ministry. It lists off, and it mentions the timbrels and pipes as though his voice was melodious. It had this beautiful voice, beautiful on the outside, full of wisdom, but according to Scripture, iniquity was found in you. It goes on in verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. And here was the heart of the issue, verse 17. Your heart was what? Lifted up. Now, let me pause right there. Was he in an exalted position already? Yes. The Lord had ordained him to this covering cherub. And, of course, your picture in your mind goes to the Ark of the Covenant with those two angels that cover the Shekinah glory that work right in the very presence of God. He was set to that post, but apparently his heart was lifted up even farther. Your heart was lifted up. Why? Because of your beauty. Now let me ask you a question. In this context, is it wrong for Lucifer to have been beautiful? No. God himself had established beauty. God loves beauty. But what happened with this individual? The position, all the different perfections, all the the wisdom, all the different gifts, and yes, the outward appearance had gone to his own head. And it says, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings, that they might gaze at you. Now, this is Lucifer as the covering cherub appointed to a particular position in the courts of heaven, and apparently he was dressed beautifully by the Lord's own doing. Now, compare that now, not to Ezekiel 28, but to Exodus 28. Go to the book of Exodus now, and go to chapter 28. When the Lord established the priesthood on the earth, I want you to notice some striking parallels between Ezekiel 28 and Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28, we're going to begin with verse 1. God now is setting Aaron and his sons apart for the position of priest, or in Aaron's case, the high priest, the representative of the people before God. And we read in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and it has for two purposes, for glory and for what? Beauty. Were these supposed to be just Drapes that have no color, no color. No, no, no. They were supposed to be beautiful for glory and for beauty. Specifically dress them. He set them apart to a post and dress them. Exactly that we saw in Ezekiel chapter 28. But we continue here. If you would skip down to verse 40, we see it repeated again. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty there was a particular uniform that they were supposed to wear for glory and for beauty. Now, on this uniform, there was a thing called the breastplate. Now, notice this, starting with verse 15. Of the same chapter, Exodus 28, now verse 15. You shall make the breastplate of judgment. Artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of what? Stones where? In it. So apparently it was this golden, this thing that was going on top, a square, a breastplate. But in it should be stones. And now notice, in little groups of three, the types of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. The second row shall be, uh, um, be a turquoise, sapphire, and a diamond. Now, there's one row that's different from the one we saw in Ezekiel, and it's the third row. It says a third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. For the exception of that third row, and I honestly am you know, not sure why the difference is there, but you see a striking similarity down to the types of stones and the sequence of stones and the number of them and their rows, that this priest was to be dressed basically the same way that lucifer was dressed in the courts of heaven and lucifer was of course appointed to a holy position a holy office just as the priest the high priest was to be appointed here on the earth but look at verse 36 after it describes more of the clothing the whole thing in exodus chapter 28 is about the clothing he's supposed to wear but notice the one thing in all the chapter that's big and bold in all caps Verse 36, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to whom? The Lord. Notice that the purpose of the priest was to represent God before the people and to represent the people to God. He was a mediator. And so all of this glory and all of this beauty that the clothing represented was not supposed to show off the priest, but it was supposed to show forth the glory of God. So it literally had in big letters, holiness to the Lord. This is not something we're supposed to take home and wear it and flaunt it around like, oh yeah, did you notice my high position? Do you like my clothes? Look at those stones. They're pretty nice. No, 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 no. The purpose was to serve a holy function and get the people's minds not onto them, but onto the Lord. But of course, we recall what happened to Lucifer in that same position. It went to his head. He corrupted his window, wisdom for the sake of his beauty. Fascinating. Now, when Christ wanted to come to the earth, of course, all the priesthood represents Jesus Christ, does it not? And when Christ came to the earth, he did not come dressed in this way. In fact, we go to the book of Isaiah, and it shows us exactly how he came, what was his physical form. Yes, it was human, but beyond that, what do we know about his physical makeup? Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 and 2. The rhetorical question is asked in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ to come, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Notice it's not a big, huge, blossoming, beautiful tree or bush or shrub, but as a tender plant. In fact, as a root out of dry ground. What does that mean? It says, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no, what, beauty that we should desire. Does that mean that no one liked Jesus? No. But why did they like him? Because he was so gorgeous and splendid and handsome and good-looking? No. Now, it doesn't say that he was grotesquely deformed or anything like that. But apparently his beauty was not an outward appearance that you could say, just look at him. He must be the son of God. How? Look at his bearing, his grandness. No, 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 no. Apparently he had no beauty, no form or comeliness that we should desire him. But people, of course, did desire him. He's the desire of ages. What was so desirable about Christ? It was his character. It's who he was on the inside, shining out. And if we go to the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul uses that Christ-like humility as the template for Christian thinking, for Christian attitude. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right there in that little sandwich of books. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. We are instructed. Let this mind be in you, which was also in whom? Christ Jesus. And it describes what is that mind of Christ, who being in the form of God, I mean, Christ is God, yes? Yes, of course. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation. Christ did not come seeking to be the biggest, the best, the brightest he didn't want to have a reputation and fame. He said it made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So looking at Christ and his humility, his condescension, even though he had every right to be praised for being God, he let it go. He stepped down, took the form of a common man, and then within that became obedient to the death on the cross. And Paul says, you see that Christ, let that mind be in you. That's how we should supposed to think. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, I want to give you a few examples in the Scripture of times when God's people have had to recalibrate their mind to be more like Christ's. And interestingly enough, time and again, we see that the outward adorning, the outward appearing, is a downfall that needs to be corrected. Apparently, it gets in the way of true walking with Christ in Christ's likeness. For example, Jacob, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, Jacob has a recommitment with himself and his household to the Lord. And if you recall, of course, God is trying to establish the nation of Israel, and he'd come to Abraham and promised that his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, would be a great nation. Jacob's name would later be changed to what? Israel, and thus his sons would be the children of Israel, and his descendants would become the nation of Israel. And we would think, ah, Abraham was always faithful, but there were times when he had shortcomings. Isaac the same way. Jacob now we see it as well. Notice chapter 35 and verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now why would he have to flee from Esau? Because he had lied and cheated and stolen the birthright, which the Lord was going to do in his own way, but he decided to do it in his own way. And now he gotten himself in trouble. He was on the run. He's not being faithful to the calling of God, but now he wants to make right. And the God says, come, let's start over. Come make an altar. And look at verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Notice that apparently Jacob had allowed the worship of foreign gods in his own household. He was not being faithful to the Lord, but now he's going to make it right. So he says to his household, that's it. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. And then he goes on to say, purify whom? Yourselves and change your what? garments." It's interesting that a change of clothes had something to do with their spiritual recommitment to Christ. Interesting. And he goes on to explain, Then let us rise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under Terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now I want you to notice something. He didn't just bury them and they were all there to see. He, what, hid them so that they can't be found. Notice this this is not a temporary, like, we're going to put them down for the day. We're going to have a special holy day. Then when the day's over, you can get your other foreign gods and put your earrings back on and go, no, 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 no. They were buried, they were hidden, and they were going to be left there as they went forward with the Lord. This is a change of garments permanently. By the way, we see the same thing in the next book over. Go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33, when those children of Israel became the nation of Israel, the Lord called them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, spoke to them in person, giving them his Ten Commandment Law. And while they were at the foot of the mountain, they were supposed to meditate on that law, reflect on the God who gave them that law, and see how they had fallen short and how they needed his power in their lives. They were supposed to be meditating on the law of God to fulfill its, to fulfill its regulation while Moses was on the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. But of course, if you recall in Exodus 32, as soon as Moses was gone out of their sight, they said, Come make us gods. And of course, had the golden calf incident. Now, the Lord, not surprisingly, did not look favorable on the golden calf incident. And we find here, as the dust settles on this and they're starting to move forward, an interesting command of the Lord. Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." So he said, okay, I'm going to continue leading you, but from a distance. You just head that way. I need to, as a parent, I can understand this a little bit more. Why don't you go over there for a minute? I'm going to be over here. Now watch this. Verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Why? Well, it tells us in verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Here again, the children of Israel are having to recommit and realign themselves with the Lord. And he says, Take off those ornaments. Let's start from the very beginning. Let's start from scratch. Let's be my people again. And it says in verse 6, so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Now, it says that same thing in the King James Version and the New King James Version. But what is not made explicit is what the Hebrew original language implies in its verb form. When it talks about they took them off or they stripped them off. Because the impression is given, oh, they had a high day. They had a day of repentance of sackcloth and ashes. And they took off their ornaments for that day. And then when they left, they picked them up again. But no, 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 no. Many, many Bible translations take the sense of the Hebrew more literally here. And I'll give you some examples. If you were to look up Exodus 33, verse 6, in the New American Standard Version, it says, So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The New Living Translation. So from, ta- from the time they left Mount Sinai, the Israelites wore no more jewelry. The revised standard version, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The English standard version, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The good news translation, so after they left Mount Sinai, the people of Israel no longer wore jewelry. Consistently, the Bible translators look at this and notice that the Hebrew language is not that this was a one-time event or a special high day, but this was a permanent change that the people of God would be peculiar for this reason. It's interesting. We read in Child Guidance, page 423, of how little value are gold and, or pearls or costly array in comparison with the loveliness of Christ. Natural loveliness consists in symmetry. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but natural beauty, we, we, scientists can study this out and verify that we think things are beautiful when they're symmetrical, when there's a perfect arrangement and a, and a proper alignment, we find our eye relax like, ah, oh, that's beautiful. Natural beauty, loveliness, consists in symmetry or the harmonious proportion of parts, each with the other. But spiritual loveliness consists in the harmony or likeness of our soul to Jesus. The more like Jesus we are, the more spiritually beautiful. This will make its possessor more precious than fine gold, even the golden wedge of Ophir. The grace of Christ is indeed a priceless ornament, adornment. It elevates and ennobles its possessor and reflects beams of glory upon others, attracting them also to the source of light and blessing. So apparently one of the downfalls that happens, because there's nothing wrong with diamonds and sapphires, and there's nothing wrong with gold inherently, but when used to deck the self, we become the end of the glory. Where what God wants to see is us be a conduit for his glory. The people will see the character and see the beauty of God instead of the beauty that we put on. And of course, the symbolic representation of God's people who have developed a Christ-like character versus those who claim to be Christ, but actually are representatives of Satan's character is seen in the book of Revelation. We've seen this before, but let's go and review it once again. Revelation chapter 12 God's faithful people are likened to a woman, are symbolically represented by a woman in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1 and we see interestingly enough the faithful and the unfaithful not only described as a woman but also describing the arraignment the clothing or adornment how they're dressed Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with what the sun with the moon under her feet and her head a garland of 12 stars. Notice that these are all beautiful, light, simple, and natural things that she's adorned with, clothed with. Now compare that picture of the faithful with Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4. Here the Antichrist beast is also depicted as a woman, the unfaithful church, and notice that to describe unfaithfulness, Look at the language that is used. Verse 4 of Revelation 17. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. A striking contrast between the two women of Revelation, the one faithful and simple and pure and holy, the other one adorning oneself with these Fine clothes, expensive clothing, these costly pearls and these decorative ornaments, and the cup of abominations, of course, the, representing this, this what later would be called the wine of Babylon. And honestly, in my experience, I have noticed among my friend group of my age that when people want to demonstrate their rebellion to God, they begin to dress like Revelation 17. They'll post it on social media, Honestly, one of the saddest times for me to be on some like these Facebook or whatever places is on Friday night when they want to demonstrate, hey, I'm at this concert and I'm drinking this and I'm dressed like this and I'm partying. It's all the different things they want to demonstrate that they're separating. And that's exactly what the symbolic language is used in Revelation 17. But every time God's people want to get right, he says, clear off those adornments. Be simple, be pure, be holy to reflect the character of God. It's a powerful thought. Our purpose in life, by the way, that's a big start of a sentence. (laughs) See where this goes. Our purpose in life is to glorify God by beholding and becoming like Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Our purpose in life is to live a life to glorify God by beholding and becoming like Jesus Christ. Let me show you some examples in the Bible of people who, when they saw Christ, realized their need. Watch this, Job chapter 42. Job is a powerful book. There's a whole sermon series in Job that might get preached sometime. Okay? But Job chapter 42, of course you should read all the 41 chapters that come before it, but Job chapter 42, the Lord speaks to Job. And and, and chapter forty one, and now in forty two, Job speaks speaks back, and look at his personal testimony here. Job, just before the book of Psalms, everybody can find Psalms and then go backwards one. Okay, Job chapter forty two, starting with verse one. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge?" Because at this point, if you, if you know the context of Job, Job has been speaking, he's been going through this difficulty, and he questions God, and he, and he, and he has these complaints. He doesn't ever curse God and die, but he definitely has some strong words. And now the Lord had asked him, who do you think you are to come and address me? And Job realizes he's way, way out of his league. You ask, again verse 3, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And he says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. So I've heard of you, right? But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor, what? Myself. Before it was proud and boasting, or at least confident. And then the Lord comes and he says, who do you think, and he just exposed himself, and he's like, I'm so bad. (laughs) I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Look similarly to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah has a direct encounter with the Lord, and notice the strikingly similar response to Job. Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to begin with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. Now these are the angel hosts, but watch what they do with their wings in the presence of God. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Even the sinless angels come before the Lord and cover their face and cover their feet. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is what? Me. Why? For I am undone. Apparently, he went into this with some sense of confidence, some sense of self-worth, but he comes in the presence of God, and he realizes, I am nothing compared to this. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Similarly, when John the Baptist saw not in outward adornment, as we already seen, but saw the character of Christ in Christ himself. What was his response? John chapter 3. When people were starting to be drawn to Jesus and his ministry was becoming more and more popular, John chapter 3. People started asking him about it. Aren't you concerned that you're going to lose your ministry? Aren't you concerned that you're not going to be as popular? Aren't you concerned that you... And look at his beautiful, pithy, succinct response. That should be the prayer of us all. John chapter 3 and verse 30. John declares, he must what? Increase, but I must decrease. When he sees Christ, he realizes it's time for me to step down and it's time for Christ to be exalted. In the little devotional book, The Faith I Live By, page 111, we find this statement. It's fascinating. Rhetorically, it asks, what is justification by faith? It's like, justification by faith, what are we talking about here? I thought we were talking about you know, clothes and adornment and outward apparel. What does that have to do with anything? Listen to this. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust, in doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, They are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's a powerful thought. What is justification by faith? It's coming to God and realizing who you aren't in contrast to who he is. And in that moment, whatever self-sufficiency, it's not just for women, and Dorman is talking about men too with pride and position and power and control. Whatever the thing is, whatever the status, whatever the outward attraction that people might have to you or you might put on so that people would be attracted to you, all of it when it comes to Christ is completely unraveled. And that is justification by faith: the laying the work of God and laying the glory of man in the dust. Thus, when we see these great principles, it makes much more sense when we go to the practical counsel of the Apostles Peter and the Apostle Paul. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter writes, not arbitrarily, not as a man of his times, not as a chauvinist or anything like that, but built on biblical principle, he gives this sound counsel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Now, pause right here. Do you see the word merely there? If you have a New King James Version, you'll find it there, and you'll also see that it's in italics. That means that's a word that was inserted by the translators to make the point more clear. But in this case, it actually makes the point more muddled. Take that word out and notice what it says Do not let your adornment be outward. And he gives a few examples. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it. Now, my question for you, if you ever diagrammed a sentence back in fifth grade, what is it here? It is a pronoun, right? Talking about what? Adornment. Let me ask you a question. Should Christians be adorned? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. How, is the question. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the what? Of the heart. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Think about that. That God wants people to be adorned and beautiful, not with the outward adornment, but with the inward character of the life. Again, this is the Apostle Peter, but now let's go to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And notice the harmony that they had, the unison with which they spoke about this issue. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It was read for our scripture reading, but we'll see it again here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1. He says, therefore, I exalt, first of all, that publication, prayers, and intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. And here's the reason why. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. His goal is we want to live our entire lives as godly and peaceful as possible. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now notice verse 8. I desire therefore, he says, I want everyone to live godly lives. That's his premise there. Now he says, now let's make it more practical. He first speaks to men and then to women. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Humble, prayerful, godly men to be praying for other people. So that's the kind of men that we need. And then he says in verse 9, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves. By the way, does the Bible tell us that women should adorn themselves? Yes, yes question is how? That the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with what? Good works. It reminds me the language almost strikes like Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount where he exhorts us let your light so shine before men that they might see your what? Fine clothes. Is that what it says? No. Or your high position. No. That they may see your good works and glorify whom? Your Father who's in heaven. The purpose of the Christian life is to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus. Again, Child Guidance, this time's page 424. Those who have a Christ-like character will have no need to be adorned with artificials. And by the way, I was, I was flipping through a magazine the other day. Not, not at the checkout line. I would do something else. But I was stuck in an airplane, and there's that one. And they, they, It's always interesting. In the airplane, they, they put you on there for a few hours, and they give you a thing that you can go shopping with. It's almost like they want money. But I was flipping through all the things, and I was shocked. I was comically shocked. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny, of how many artificial things they sell you to put on you, both men and women, to change your appearance. I didn't even know these things existed. Apparently, you can have fake hair, fake eyes, fake teeth, fake body parts, top to bottom, whatever you don't like. You can change your whole thing. You, you can put different color eyes and You can put different color nails in. You can, put different, you can do all kinds of different things to put on a persona of someone that you'd want to be, right? And they charge you money for it. <laughs> and it was just incredible to me. I was like, what if everyone got every one of these things? They'd be a whole different person. No. But that's not the person God designed you to be. God wants us to be beautiful. He wants us to be adorned with his Christ-likeness that shines from the inside out. Again, those who have a Christ-like character will have no need to be adorned with artificials, for these are always expressive of an absence of the inward adorning of true moral worth. A beautiful character is a value in the sight of God. Such beauty will attract, but not mislead. Think about that. Such beauty will attract, but not mislead. I thought about it. if I was still, you know, single and I was looking for a spouse, and I thought, oh, this person is attractive. Then we get home, it's like, whoa! All of a sudden, the hair comes off, the face comes off, and the body, whoa, whoa, who are you? You know, it's misleading. Yes, it's attractive, but misleading. It's false. It's a vapor. But according to this, such beauty, a Christ-like character, will attract but not mislead. Such charms are fast colors. They never fade. The pure religion of Jesus requires of its followers the simplicity of natural beauty and the polish of natural refinement and elevated purity rather than the artificial and false. False. One more reference. This is from a little devotional book called Lift Him Up, page 305. God, who created everything lovely and beautiful that the eye rests upon, is a lover of the beautiful. You know, sometimes I think Christians say, well, I guess I can't adore myself, so I'm going to show how. Your goal is not to be as ugly as possible, nor is your goal to be as artificial. and Your goal is to be as Christ-like as possible in all things. God, who created everything lovely and beautiful that the eye rests upon, is a lover of the beautiful. He shows you how he estimates true beauty. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit is in his sight of great price. Shall we not seek earnestly to gain that which God estimates is more valuable than the costly dress or pearls or gold? The inward adorning, the grace of meekness, a spirit in harmony with the heavenly angels will not lessen true dignity of character or make less lovely or make us less lovely here in this world. I think there's a fear that a simple, humble, pure life will be less attractive to those around us. But Christ came to live an example that beauty from the outside is not what draws genuine, but it's the character from the inside. Let me close with one text, and it's the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes we look at this particular topic and say, yep, he's just talking about women again. No, 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 this is talking about people. And Paul struggled with it too. His issue, of course, wasn't wearing of jewels, I guess. I assume not. He never mentions it. But, but the pride of life and the position and the power and the prestige, the fame that could have been his. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the what? In the flesh. Were you there with me? I asked for what, no one said anything. Have no confidence in the what? In the flesh. And he explains, Though I myself, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. In fact, he goes on to say, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. It's like, if you think you've got prestige and ta- status, more i've got more than you we can go toe-to-toe on this issue he explains how verse five of philippians three circumcised the eighth day of the stock of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of the hebrews concerning the law a pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless He's like, I have all the credentials, all the bona fides. If you want to have someone that you should be in shock and awe about, it's me. But, verse 7, but what things were gained to me. It's like, I used to think those things were valuable. Those were my possessions, my status. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Think about that. Justification by faith is the work of God of laying man's glory in the dust. Paul experienced it. He said, I could have touted all of these great accolades, but I counted all as nothing. In fact, I counted as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Verse 10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Then he goes on, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which for Jesus Christ has that for which Jesus Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, which he had just listed out, all the greatness, all of the pomp, all of the status, forgetting those things. Which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 15, "The same thing he had just said in chapter two, "Let this mind be in you. therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything we think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. It's a powerful thought to think like, to be like Jesus Christ, who didn't by the way, could Christ have gone and put up status and prestige and power? Absolutely. He was God himself. But he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And we're, set, we're told, let that mind to be in you don't have the mind of Satan who looks for himself and looks to, and looks to look at all these great things that God has given and as an opportunity to boast. He said, no, no, no. Don't seek for outward. Don't seek for the simple. I mean, don't seek for the, for the uh, tactile, but the inside. That character, that only comes from seeking Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.